that are utilizing children's ministry, um, you are more than welcome to take your children back there now. We run that through first grade. And for those of you that, uh, whose kids are staying in the service, we love having them in, in the service. And uh, just by way of reminder, they are uh, learning just like we are. I had a conversation with my six-year-old this morning who says he understands some of what we say and do on Sunday morning. And I said, well... So do the adults. We understand some of it, but certainly we don't understand all of it, right? Um, We have been working through our uh, confession of faith. We just read it paragraph by paragraph. We've been doing this for many months now, and we are on chapter 6, which accounts for us the fall of man of sin and then the punishment uh, thereof. And we are on paragraph chapter 2. I'm just going to read it. Um, It speaks of... Uh, just the federal headship of us falling in our first parents, Adam and Eve. It says this, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness, right? What God created them in, and their communion with God. And we, all of us, in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of the soul and of the body. And so that's paragraph two of chapter six in the London Confession of Faith. Um, But if you have your Bibles, I would have you just simply open them. I am going to uh, go to various passages that may be hard for you to turn to get there quick enough, but for the places that you are able to turn and look, that will be beneficial. And the rest we have up here on the uh, screen this morning. Um, But uh, we have been going through just a short series. And so we're, we're getting ready in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, to get back into the gospel of Mark and just working through the gospel of Mark verse by verse. I'm excited to be able to jump back in there with all of you. Uh, but the elders thought that it would be a good idea just uh, for the month of January and obviously this first week here in February for us to uh, really think through together how we worship as a local church, just the distinctives here at Deer Park Fellowship, both as we as members remember and prayerfully uh, consider our membership covenant here. We re-sign that as members annually. Uh, but also for those of you that have been visiting us for weeks or for months, we thought that it would be a good opportunity to to work through some of uh, the... the um, Again, just the distinguishing marks of our particular local church that we pray are not um, unique, um, but uh, we wanted to put this in front of you. And for those of you who have been considering membership, uh, just on behalf of the elders, I would love to invite you to our our new members class if you would like to attend that. We're going to do that on Sunday, March 19th at 9 a.m., and we're going to meet in the fellowship hall for that. Um, You can meet the elders there. We'll go through uh, just the church constitution and you can learn more about what it means to be a member and just the, the process of becoming a member here. So you're, you are most welcome to come to that. And we'll begin to announce that more as we get closer to that. Um, But this morning is, as I said, this is the last sermon in this short series. And I, I wanted to end this series, um, by remembering the, the triumphal nature of the reign of Jesus. And so, so this morning, what I want us to do is really, despite what we see going on in our society, to think and apply in our lives the exaltation 
of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm going to read a number of passages from different places, uh, that, and it's, it's going to take me a moment to do that, and, but I want to, to, to encourage you to, to really think through the things that I'm reading and, and think through the, the thread that is connecting these passages as I read them, as we reflect on the exaltation of Jesus this morning. So just allow me to read these passages, and then after I read the different passages, I'll pray And then we will work through this together. But the first passage that I want to read, and and perhaps this is the primary passage of this morning, um, and because it's where the other passages are, it's the Old Testament passage that the other passages are pooling from, uh, is Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1. It's a psalm of David. It's one that's often quoted in the New Testament, and it's applied to Jesus. And so it's truly a messianic psalm, okay? And, and it's the, like I said, it's the source material for the other passages that I'm going to read you. But Psalm 110, chapter 1, it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Right? And we want to read that with our Trinitarian commitments, okay? The Father says to the Son... Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool, okay? Then Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37 is another passage. Jesus, he applied this psalm, Jesus does, to the Messiah, which means that Jesus is applying this psalm to himself, right? And he says this, Jesus answered, and he said while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people, not the religious people that were listening, but the common people, it says, heard him gladly, right? They were eager. They were happy. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, the beginning of the great commission, right? We should know this. Jesus Christ says, After his bodily resurrection, all authority, not some authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. This is what Jesus' followers begin to do after Jesus ascended. Okay, they begin to make his enemies, the enemies of Christ, his footstool through the preaching of of the gospel. He says, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And they, speaking of the disciples, went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 35, we've got Paul preaching to the Jews that particularly crucified Jesus. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago, but starting with verse 33, it says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, right in light of that, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. So that's why we want to read Psalm 110.1 with the Trinity in mind, right? God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 to 26. For he, Christ, must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is what? Death. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Right? Set your mind on Christ. Right? When he gets up, when he returns, we'll be with him in glory. The apostle Paul says this, If then you were raised with Christ, speaking being spiritually raised with him. Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who's our life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. And then we see, and I'll read just two more passages to you. The preacher to the Hebrews, probably the Apostle Paul, teaching the Hebraic church about the superiority of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, the first four verses. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, right? Jesus being the final word of God, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, get this, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And then Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, speaking of the superiority of Christ even over the angels, the author of Hebrews, but to which of his angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So a selection of passages for us. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us hold these in our minds and hearts. God, we thank you for your word, God. The, just the clear teaching in scripture about the exaltation of Christ. God, something we don't think about enough. Something that is evidenced by just how quickly we can despair with what we see in society. What we see in our own lives. So help us, God. Lord, help me to honor you in the way that I talk about these passages, Lord, and help us to be shaped by your word through the power of your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure that, that you picked up on what connected um, these passages of Scripture as I read them to you, but, but I read them to you, and there are other places that we could go in Holy Scripture to show you just, again, how pervasive the exaltation of Jesus Christ really is in Scripture. And I want to explain just quickly, shorthand, what his exaltation is. Okay? The, the exaltation, it begins with the bodily and eternal resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? If, we, if you've heard the, the phrase, the humiliation of Jesus, right? We're thinking of him condescending, coming, right? Taking on human flesh, right? Living in the shadow of our sin, his entire earthly ministry, right? Being crucified for our sins on the cross, right? His death, his burial, his descent, right? That when we think of the humiliation of Christ, that's what we're thinking of. When we're thinking of the exaltation of Christ, we're thinking about his bodily and eternal resurrection. We're thinking about his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and we're thinking of his being seated at God's right hand, right? And 
being the ruler of the world. So when we use the word exaltation, that's that's what we mean. And and this morning, what I want to do, as I've already said, is I want to seek to apply the exaltation of Jesus to our lives. We can do that by God's help, right? I want us to answer the question, how should we live in light of the exaltation of Jesus? If you've been at Deer Park for any length of time, you know that the authority of Christ and the triumph of his gospel and his lordship over the nations, it's a theme that we regularly revisit, right? And, and some of that is because we're so forgetful about it. But, but this is the reason, right? If I could bottom line it, this is the driver for our joy as Christians. And, and the reason why I think Christians should be full of hope, really, right? Us being full of hope and, and, and dare I say, biblically optimistic, right? It's because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's because of the authority of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that we're naive, right? It, it isn't pretending. It's not us pretending that there are no enemies of the gospel, that, that, that it's not us pretending that Christ doesn't have enemies, right? It isn't us burying our heads in the sand and just hoping that bad things will go away, right? It isn't us ignoring, frankly, the very evil things in our lives, personally, and also what we see in society, right? This hope This optimism grounded in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, it's a filter, okay? It's a a filter, a true filter through which we look at those circumstances, a filter that's rooted in Scripture despite the fact that we often have trouble believing that it's true. But it's a filter by which we evaluate through this wide lens, if you will, our past and our present in our future, and are able to face it with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and self-control. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, I would say that that's the shorthand application to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We're able to face the circumstances in our lives and in this society with confidence, not in ourselves and in our abilities or in the way that we think, but we're able to face it with confidence in our exalted Christ. And this keeps us from despair. This keeps us from bitterness. It also keeps us from a defeatism theology. Right, that Christ and his worldview will be defeated in this life. Right? Furthermore, just having this biblically optimistic lens, it helps us not just to face the circumstances of our lives, but it helps us also as Christians, as God's church, to stay on mission, to stay focused, to emphasize those things that need to be emphasized in a dark and decaying and pagan society for us to emphasize those things that need to be emphasized in that sort of deci- that sort of society and allow me just for a moment to use the word of god to describe 
what a dark, decaying, pagan society looks like. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, because we find the descriptor there, don't we? And many of you know where, where I'm going with this. Romans chapter 1. We start with verse 18. <clears throat> Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, some of your translations say it's plain to them. Right? For God has shown it. To them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise which certainly describes our society, right? Professing to be wise. Right? They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, and in light of that, God also gave them up to the uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what's shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do they do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. That, this is, this is what it looks like. And we look up from our Bibles, and we should know that this is the type of society that we live in, isn't it? So this is, on the one hand, nothing new. We're not the first people in the history of the universe to face the things that we're facing, right? But on the other hand, we should see a nation, our nation, as one under the wrath of God, and we should have clarity. We should have biblical clarity on the wickedness around us. Right? We live in a country right, that has executed 60 million little image bearers and calls it women's health and erects a statue in New York, literal idols to celebrate abortion. Right? We live in a society right, that votes in politicians that advance that wicked ideology. 
Right? We live in a country that refuses to care about the least of these and doesn't truly seek the good of our neighbors and in, abounds in, 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 in pride and abounds in prayerlessness. Right? We're a country full of envy and covetousness that's reflected well in our national debt and the things in which we think we're entitled to. We're a country that refuses to understand the very basics of biology and gender. Further evidence that we're under the wrath of God, that our understanding, like it says in Romans 1, is darkened. We're a country that has taken marriage, which was invented by God, and we've arrogantly redefined it. The church for a long time, trailing the blaze in that by tolerating divorce amongst our membership. And we're a country that not only practices these things, but as Romans chapter 1 verse 32 says, we affirm those who practice them, which means that we're a society that disapproves and even penalizes those who wouldn't affirm God's glorious standard. Now that, this is what a society looks like when unrighteousness suppresses truth. It isn't a society, isn't that our society doesn't know what's true, right? In fact, the law of God, we know, according to the word of God, the law of God is written on our hearts, but it's that our wicked passions, our unrestrained sin suppresses what we know to be true. Our sin clouds what is obvious. And what's the root of this ultimately? It is a legitimate question that we should be asking, right? According to verse 25, there is there's an exchange that's taken place. There's an exchange that's taken place. The truth of God has been exchanged for a lie, and instead of worshiping the Creator, there's creature worship in our society, right? There's creature worship, right? Which is really the worship of self, we get down to it, right? Our society worships self. Our society is made up of individuals that think that they are autonomous, that there is no God above in which they must give an account, that each person instead is their own individual God. So as Christians, you know, and I give you this, as Christians living in this society, how do we thrive? How do we thrive, right? How do we not despair in an environment like this, right? Well, the empire that the Apostle Paul was addressing, right, which was the Roman Empire in Romans 1, and if you didn't know this, it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. It collapsed, right? It crumbled. Yet, God's kingdom still exists and is expanding and has been for 2,000 plus years despite the opposition. That in and of itself should strengthen us, shouldn't it? But, but let's think even more just thoroughly through the exaltation of Christ in his expanding kingdom and how that should shape us in the midst of a culture of death, in the midst of a culture of decay. And if you're taking notes and kids, you can jot this down too in your, your guide as well. The first thing is that the exalted Christ should give us inner peace and patience. The exalted Christ should give us inner peace and patience. Right? And that, this cuts at least two ways for us. Okay, first, maybe, 
Maybe this side of eternity, you're wrestling <clears throat> with your assurance of salvation. Maybe the darkness and everything that you see, again, going on in society, maybe, maybe the darkness is overwhelming you, right? If you're struggling with your assurance of salvation, meditating on the exaltation of Christ is truly beneficial because you need assurance of your salvation to thrive in the type of society in which we live in. And so we, we need to, as Christians, we need to gaze spiritually through the Word of God with the help of the Spirit. We need to gaze on Christ who is seated and who the author of Hebrews says, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that when He by Himself had purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? Christ is seated because He's purged our sins, my sins, your sins. We should gaze at that. We should behold that. We should marvel at that, right? There's no sin in your life. There's no sin in my life that Christ didn't die for. And the evidence of that isn't just the empty tomb, though that's marvelous, wonderful evidence. The evidence as well is his ascension, his ascension. It's his being at the right hand of the Father on high. It's his ruling. It's his reigning. And for the believer, for the one who's been transformed by the gospel of God, we don't receive that information and then think to ourselves, well, then if, you know, if all my sins have been forgiven, I have license to sin, right? No, don't think that way. Right? The good news of the gospel Again, when you've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good, that sort of good news that Christ has forever put your sins away is met with humility. It's met with adoration. It's met with joy. It's met with tears. It's met with peace, true peace. Furthermore, right, Christ is seated. And what is he doing for you right now? He's interceding for you. Right? He, he's He's praying for you. And get this, right? We know as Christians that Jesus prays according to the will of the Father, right? Luke chapter 22, verse 42. And if he's praying for your perseverance, Christian, and by the way, he is, he is praying for your perseverance, right? If he's praying for your perseverance, then it's God's will that you, by the Spirit, will persevere in the faith, Right? Jesus' prayers for you are effectual. They're effectual. He'll see you home. Right? He who began a good work in you will make sure that that good work is completed. Right? We see that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. So the seated Christ who intercedes for you, it should bring a stillness to your soul when the accuser, right, who's the devil, comes to rob you of your peace in a dark society. But there's another aspect to Christ being exalted that we need to acknowledge. For those of you who feel like you're raging inside because of what you see in society, and perhaps you feed that rage with your constant connectivity to what's going on in the world, but if you feel angry or bitter or hard-hearted, or if you look around at things constantly going on, and frankly, you're just worried, right? Your mind has on repeat this series of just what-if questions. What if, what if, what if? Genuinely, and hear, hear, hear me well, it's because you haven't settled your heart and mind on the exalted Christ. That's why that's happening. His sitting 
His exaltation, it preaches to us, to you and to me. It preaches to us his authority. It preaches to us his authority. And he has absolute authority over heaven. Right? We can again define that as what's not seen. And over the earth, we can define that over what is seen. And the resistance that we observe, maybe in ourselves, right? Because we still have remaining and dwelling sin, but the resistance that we observe in ourselves and the resistance that we observe in our society, right? It isn't an indicator that Jesus doesn't have authority. It's not an indicator that he doesn't have authority. Rather, it further teaches us something about the nature of Christ's kingdom. Matthew chapter 13, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you, just verses 31 to 33. You'll be familiar with this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it's grown, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It's the good kind of leaven, unlike the leaven we talked about last week. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. The Lord Jesus, he doesn't take orders from you or from me. He's not in a hurry. With the Lord, a, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He spreads his kingdom on his sovereign timetable according to the counsel of his will. Right? We pray as Christians, we fast, we labor, but we humbly submit to what we see God doing in the nations, and we humbly submit to what we don't see, to what we don't see. But we don't have the authority to be disgruntled at his pace. We don't have the authority to be disgruntled at the way in which he chooses to grow his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Right? This is why one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. And no one is born patient, right? We need patience. We need to have, as Christians, the long view in mind. Right? But I, I will say this, right? We also need to be attentive to our motives. We need to be attentive to our motives. A lot of times we want God's kingdom to come, not because we want our triune God, but because we want the benefits we think his kingdom brings. In other words, we want his gifts, Right? And even good gifts from God can be made idols when they take a position that they were never intended to take. Right? God is who we should desire, is who we should hunger for and thirst for. We should hunger and thirst for his presence in our lives. Right? So the exalted Christ, we see first and foremost, should give us peace and should give us patience, the long view in mind. Secondly, we fight the temptations and sins of this world by looking above, by gazing above, right? That's the very thing that the Apostle Paul is urging the church of Colossae in the Colossians passage that I read to you a moment ago in chapter 3, right? Just a quick reminder, if then you are raised with Christ, again, spiritual resurrection we're talking about here, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sit, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right? You know that saying, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly 
good, right? We've probably heard that saying a lot, right? That's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. It's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. We're taught that heavenly-mindedness, it's not ethereal. It's, it's not academic. It's actually quite blue-collar, if I can use that terminology to describe it, right? Setting our minds and thus our affections on Christ Jesus, cultivating that habit in our lives is the way, the way we combat sins and temptations, right? We were spiritually raised with Jesus Christ. If we were spiritually raised with him, and again, according to the Holy Scripture, we were spiritually raised when he was bodily and eternally raised. If we were spiritually raised with him, then the old man, right, our old man was left behind in the empty tomb. That's what baptism preaches to us when we observe baptism here together, right? The old man's left behind. we raised to walk in newness of life. Right? We share spiritual union with Jesus. Our lives are hid with him, right, with Christ in God. So if you're being dominated by, by sin in your life, and, and many of our children this morning could define sin if we gave them the opportunity just because they, they're being catechized, right? right? Sin is any transgression, any dis, disobedience to the law of God. If you're being dominated by your sin, right, it's because your mind isn't fixed on Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to struggle with sin in this life, sin is going to be a struggle until Christ returns. But your struggle with sin as a Christian, it should be different. It should be different. And if you find yourself seemingly enslaved, I would encourage you very practically to look at your habits. Your habits are an indicator of where your mind and heart are. Right? Your heart certainly is the driver of your habits. But your habits, right, again, can point back to the root issue a good indicator there of where your heart lies, but your habits can also shape your heart, can have a shaping influence on your heart and mind too. So believer, what do you think about? What do you meditate on? What are you obsessed with? What dominates your conversation and your speeches with others? Is your heart and mind fixed on Christ? Or is it fixed on lesser things? May our prayer be that of the psalmist. Quote, turn away my eyes from looking at, and I love this, worthless things. Right? Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things because everything's worthless when we compare it to the glory of God. But turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. And so in a dark and decaying world, we must think on things that are above where our exalted Christ is. And that's the path toward overcoming the sins and temptations of this world. Third, enemies of Christ should not surprise us or embitter us. Enemies of Christ should not surprise us or embitter us. If I were to go back and read the passages I read to you at the beginning of the service, one of the threads connecting them is that Jesus has enemies. Right? Jesus has enemies, and oftentimes we may be on the receiving end of the wrath of God's enemies. But Jesus told his disciples, and since the word of God has been preserved and it's living and active, it means that he's, he's telling us as well. Jesus told his disciples that in this world we'll have trouble. Right? John chapter 16, verse 33, and John, 
one of the disciples of Jesus, right, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he told us that we shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us. You see, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. So my question is, why do we act so surprised? Or like we're taken off guard? And why do we take things so personally as Christians? Like why are we bitter? If our Lord suffered, why should we expect anything different? I don't understand that logic. We're going to suffer. We need to expect to suffer. I'm not saying go out and look for it. I'm not saying cheer it on. But we're going to suffer this out of eternity as Christians. Right? And again, God did not spare his only son from suffering. And certainly we will not be spared from suffering either. You know, the scriptures that I referenced aren't talking about the sinful reasons that we give people for giving us trouble. Right? Some of us get into trouble because we lack self-control, right? That kind of trouble is a consequence of our sin. But what's in view here in these texts are the troubles that you will experience because of your commitment to the gospel of God. Your commitment to honor the Lord, it may get you into trouble. It may cost you something increasingly in our society. Right? Your commitment to have biblical categories for sin may get you into trouble. Right, your commitment to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, not saying his name, but that it's through him. He's the only way in which man can have peace with God. That can get you into trouble. Right, your commitment to raise your children in a covenantal way, right, taking proper Christian stewardship of your children may get you in trouble. A commitment to live an honest and quiet life may get you into trouble. But in the midst of trouble, right, we're also reminded by the words of Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 33. Because it doesn't end with him just saying that in this world we'll have trouble. Jesus also says in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have overcome the world. Right? I have overcome the world. Our exalted Christ has done that. His exaltation is the evidence of that. And if Christ has overcome the world, and we know that Jesus is not a liar, why do we despair or fret or get paralyzed by the remaining enemies? Why do we become embittered? Why do we become seething? So that's the third thing. Enemies of Christ should not surprise us or embitter us. Christ has overcome the world. Fourth, the exaltation of Christ should affect how we make disciples. should affect how we make disciples. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, which means that we don't go in our own authority. We go in the authority of Jesus. And as we go through life, we do so mindful, again, that we're not waiting on Jesus Christ to be exalted. We're not waiting for Christ to have authority. That's a present reality even now. And when we speak of him in humility, and love, and compassion, and patience, we should speak of him mindful of his exaltation. Before we can truly love our neighbor, we have to love the Lord. And a part of loving the Lord is seeking to honor him in how we speak about him, and in the posture in which we are, heart posture as we speak about him. We want to be truthful, and humble, and submissive to who the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is. Is. And in our making of disciples, we're not asking people to vote on whether or not Jesus Christ can be exalted. 
Now, that's not how we're evangelizing. Again, that's already the case. We're lovingly calling people to embrace that fixed reality that there is a good kingdom with a good, there's a good king with a good kingdom. We're inviting people to the green pastures of our Lord. And our invitation to them is to leave behind their idols and instead embrace the one true triune God. That is our task. And this is a comprehensive task. The Great Commission is to make disciples that obey all that Jesus Christ has commanded. This is why the Great Commission is primarily a local church commission. It's the church that the Lord uses to to preach the word and to give Trinitarian baptisms and to build by his means, the means of grace, a fully furnished man or woman of God. That's why at Deer Park, our main missional focus is the planting of local churches in nations. But to bring it to our doorstep for a moment, our very neighbors need to hear about the exaltation of Jesus from us. Our very neighbors need a loving local church to care for them, to care for their soul, to care for their eternal well-being. And the exalted Christ is the fuel and And by the way, a powerful motivator in the way in which we seek to make disciples. And then lastly, the exalted Christ will return when his enemies are made his footstool. The exalted Christ will return when his enemies are made his footstool. Christ's enemies are made his footstool one of two ways. His enemies are finally conquered through gospel triumph. We, We were once enemies of God. The Bible calls us that, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And, and we don't need to forget that. It can drive our humility, again, can drive our love and our patience with other image bearers. Right? The gospel of God, by the Spirit of God, it subdues, it captures the hearts of man. It takes their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. Right? But Christ's enemies are also made as footstool through judgment. Christ is judge as well, and we mustn't forget that. And there's a judgment coming. Every person ever created will stand before Jesus the judge and will either be judged according to their works, their own biographies, which earn an everlasting hell, or judged according to the biography of Jesus, judged according to the works of Jesus, who earned everlasting peace with God. Both peace with God and eternal wrath. Of, 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 of Christ's enemies. Both of those things are in view with this footstool language that's used throughout the scriptures here and the various passages that I read to you this morning. But when Christ returns, the very last enemy, right, our enemy, the very last enemy to be defeated is, is, is who? Is death. Is death, right? Death is defeated. And the defeat of death, it looks like our resurrection, It looks like your resurrection and my resurrection because we're going to bodily rise from the grave, just like Jesus bodily resurrected from the grave 2,000 plus years ago, right? On that great day, there is this definitive reverse of the curse, right? There is this grand undoing of absolutely everything that's rebellious. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, Christ, he finally brings in this environment in which there is no capacity for a Romans chapter 1 type of society, right? A society like ours, a society that's been around ever since the fall of Adam in the garden, 
right? That it, when Adam exchanged the worship of the triune God for creature worship, for self-worship, right? That will be no more when the exalted Christ returns. Instead, we will for all eternity declare with all of creation the holiness of our triune God, and we will be warmed by the rays of his glory. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that produce so much hope in you this morning? We will live together in everlasting joy because our Lord is with us, no longer just spiritually with us, but he tabernacles with us. Our faith will become sight. We will lay eyes on our resurrected, glorified, exalted Christ. So he'll return for us in his present exaltation, in his ruling, in his reigning, in his subduing his enemies. It should cause us to think regularly about his return. We should long for his return. We should rest knowing that he will in fact return, and we should labor and anticipate his return. So in this present cultural environment that we find ourselves in, I want to encourage you this morning, Christ really is exalted. Christ's kingdom is growing. It is expanding. It has been since his resurrection, despite the hostilities in our culture. Right? And that, that's going to continue to be the case no matter the enemies that are faced. So, so in light of that, as Christians, we need to hold our preferences open-handed. We need to hold our material possessions open-handed. We need to hold our creature comforts open-handed. And we, know, we need to know This should animate our lives that whatever happens in our lives, whatever happens in our society is for our good and it serves the purpose of expanding the kingdom of God. And so let us grow together to to be more mindful of the exaltation of Jesus and may that be the driver, the fuel of our joy and our hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time that we have together, God. We thank you that Christ is presently exalted and is ruling over all things. And God, we ask that you would keep us from despair and God, that you would also keep us from passivity, Lord, that you would help us to labor joyfully with a long view in mind, with the constant prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.